22. Chat on the steps in the twilight. We were disappointed, for we were tired of restaurants, and had counted on a home meal that night, nor was our disappointment softened by the fact that the lady whom we interviewed seemed to have no pity for us, but dismissed us in a chilling manner, which hinted that, even had we been in time for dinner, we should have been none too welcome at her exclusive board. Crestfallen, we turned away and started once more in the direction of the Bell Café. In the half-light the street held for us a melancholy loveliness. Above, the great trees made a dark, soft canopy. The air was balmy and sweet with the scent of lilacs and roses. Lights were beginning to appear in windows along the way. Yet none of it was for us. We were wanderers, condemned forever to a walk through strange streets whose homes we might not enter, and whose inhabitants we might not know. When we had proceeded in silence for a block or two, we perceived a woman strolling toward us on the walk ahead nor was it yet so dark that we could fail to notice, as we neared her, that she was very pretty in her soft black dress and her corsage of narcissus that, in short, she was the young lady whom, though we were indebted to her for our rooms at Mrs. I. Shelberger's, we had not been able to thank, now, of course, we stopped and told her of our gratitude, first my companion told her of his, then I told her of mine, then we both told her of our combined gratitude, and after each telling she assured us sweetly that it was nothing nothing at all. All this made quite a little conversation. She hoped that we were comfortable. We assured her that we were. Then, because it seemed so pleasant to be talking, on a mummy, flower-scented evening, with a pretty girl wearing a soft black dress and a corsage of narcissus, we branched out, telling her of our successive disappointments as to meals in the house up the street. Which house? She asked. We described it. That's where I live, said she, and to think we had twice been late. You live there? Yes, it was my elder sister whom you saw. Then we all smiled, for we had spoken of the chill which had accompanied the rebuff. Do you think your sister will let us come tomorrow for breakfast? Ventured my companion, if you're there by eight. Because, he added, breakfast is our last meal here. You're going away? Yes, about noon. Oh, she said and we hoped the way she said it meant that she was just the least bit sorry we were going, with that she started to move on again, we'll see you at breakfast, then, perhaps, she said in a casual tone, continuing on her way, not surely, why not come and see, the words were wafted back to us provocatively upon the evening air, we will, good night, good night, we walked some little way in silence, eight o'clock, murmured my companion presently in a reflective, rueful tone, we must turn in early, we did turn in early, and we should have been asleep early was it not for the fact that among the chief wonders of Columbus must be ranked its roosters birds of a ghastly habit of nocturnal vocalism, but though these creatures interfered somewhat with our slumbers, and though eight is an early hour for us, we reached the neighboring house next morning five minutes ahead of time, and though the manner of the elder sister was, as before, austere, that made no difference for the younger sister was there, after breakfast we dallied, chatting with her for a time, then a bell began to toll, and my companion reminded me that I had an engagement to visit the industrial institute and college before leaving, it was quite true, I had made the engagement the day before, but it had been my distinct understanding that he was to accompany me, for if anything disconcerts me it is to go alone to such a place, however sweet girls may be as individuals, or in small groups, they are in the mass diabolically cruel, and their cruelty is directed especially against men, I know, 
I have walked up to a college building to pay a call, while thirty girls, seated on the steps, played, sang, and whistled in an aim-marching tune, with the rhythm of which my steps could not but keep time. I have been the only man in a dining room full of college girls. A hundred of them put down their knives and forks with a clatter as I entered, and a hundred pairs of mischievously solemn eyes followed my every movement. Voluntarily to go through such experiences alone a man must be in love, and certainly I was not in love with any girl at the Industrial Institute. We both had an engagement. I said, I can't go. He returned, why not? I have two sketches to make before train time. You're going to make me go over there alone? I don't care whether you go or not. He replied mercilessly. You made the engagement. I had nothing to do with it. But I am responsible for the pictures. Perceiving that it was useless to argue with him, I reluctantly departed and, not without misgivings, made my way to the Industrial Institute. I am thankful to say that their matters did not turn out so badly for me as I had anticipated. I refused to visit classrooms, and contented myself with gathering information, and since the going to gather this information cost me such an easiness, I do not propose to waste entirely the fruits of my effort, but shall here record some of the facts that I collected. The Industrial Institute and Colleges for Girls of 16 years or over who are graduates of high schools. There are about 800 students taking either the collegiate, normal, industrial, or musical courses, or combination courses. This college, I was informed, was the first in the country to offer industrial education to women. Most of the students come from families in modest circumstances, and attend the college with the definite purpose of fitting themselves to become self-supporting. The cost is very slight. The only regular charge, aside from board and general living expenses, being a nominal matriculation fee of five, there is no charge for rooms in the large dormitories connected with the college. Board, light, fuel, and laundry are paid for cooperatively. The average cost per student, for all these, being about $10 a month which sum also includes payment for a lyceum ticket and for two hats per annum. Uniforms are worn by all, these being very simple navy blue suits with sailor hats. Seniors and juniors wear cap and gown. All uniform requirements may be covered at a cost of $20 a year, and a girl who practices economy may get through her college year at a total cost of about $125, though of course some spend considerably more. Many students work their way, either wholly or in part. 30 or 40 of them serve in the dining room, for which work they are allowed $65 a year. Others, who clean classrooms are allowed $50 a year and still others earn various sums by assisting in the library or reading room or by doing secretarial work. And like the other departments of the college, the musical department is not a tax upon the state, but is entirely self-sustaining, each girl paying for her own lessons. This department is under the direction of Miss Winona Poindexter, to whose enthusiasm much if not all of its success is due. Miss Poindexter began her work in 1894, as the college's only piano teacher giving lessons in the dormitories. Now she not only has a splendid music hall and a number of assistants, but has succeeded in making Columbus one of the recognized musical centers of the South, by bringing there a series of the most distinguished artists, Podorowski, Nordica, Schumann-Hank, Gadsky, Sembrick, Pistam, Albert Spalding, Maude Powell, Damrush's Orchestra, and Sousa's Band. So much I had learned of the IINC when it came time for me to flee to the train. My companion and I had already packed our suitcases, and it had been arranged between us that, 
instead of consuming time by trying to meet and drive together to the station, we should work independently, joining each other at the train. I left the college in an automobile, stopping at Mrs. I. Shelberger's only long enough to get my suitcase. As I drove on past the next corner I chanced to look up the intersecting street. There, by a lilac bush, stood my companion. He was not alone. With him was a very pretty girl wearing a soft black dress and a corsage of Narcissus. But the corsage was now smaller, by one flower, than it had been before. For, as I sighted them, she was in the act of placing one of the blooms from her bouquet in my companion's buttonhole. Her hands looked very white and small against his dark coat. And I recall that he was gazing down at them, and that his features were distorted by a sentimental smile. Come on, I called to him. He looked up. His expression was vague. Go along. He returned. Why don't you come with me now? I'll be there. He replied. You buy the tickets and check the baggage. And with that he turned his back. Goodbye. I called to the young lady. But she was looking up at him and didn't seem to hear me. My companion arrived at the station in an old hack. With horses at the gallop. He was barely in time. When we were settled in the car. Bowling along over the prairies toward the little junction town of Artesia. I turned to him and inquired how his work had gone that morning, but at that moment he caught sight, through the car window, of some negroes sitting at a cabin door, and exclaimed over their picturesqueness. I agreed. Then, as the train left them behind, I repeated my question, how did your work go? This is very fertile looking country, said he. This time I did not reply, but asked, did you finish both sketches? Mumber, he answered, not both. There wasn't time. Let's see the one you did. As a matter of fact, he returned, I didn't do any. You know how it is. Sometimes a fellow feels like drawing sometimes he doesn't. Somehow I didn't feel like it this morning. With that he lifted the lapel of his coat and, bending his head downward, sniffed in a romantic manner at the sickeningly sweet flower in his buttonhole. Chapter XLV Vicksburg Gold and knew I should advise the traveler who was interested in cities not to enter Vicksburg by the Alabama and Vicksburg Railroad which has a dingy little station in a sort of gulch, but by the Yazoo and Mississippi Valley Railroad a branch of the Illinois Central which skirts the river bank and flashes a large first impression of the city before the eyes of alighting passengers. The station itself is a pretty brick colonial building, backed by a neat if tiny park maintained by the railroad company, and facing the levee pronounced Lefty, along which the tracks are laid. Beyond the tracks and tidy landing places are scattered along the waterfront with here and there a tall, awkward, sternwheel river steamer tied up, looking rather like an old-fashioned New Jersey seacoast hotel, covered with porches and gimcrack carving, painted white, embellished with a cupola and a pair of tall, thin smokestacks, and set adrift in its old age to masquerade in maritime burlesque, that other points along the bank are moored a heterogeneous assortment of shanty boats of an incredible and comic slouchiness, some are nothing but rafts made of water-soaked logs, Bearing tiny shacks knocked together out of driftwood and old patches of tin and canvas, but the larger ones have barges, or the hulks of old launches, as their foundation. These curious craft are moored in long lines to the half-submerged willow and cottonwood trees along the bank, or to stakes driven into the levee, or to the railroad ties, or to whatever objects, ashore, may be made fast an old frayed rope or a piece of telephone wire, long, narrow planks, precariously propped connect them with the river bank, so that the men, women, children, dogs, and barnyard creatures who inhabit them may pass to and fro, 
Some of the boats are the homes of Negro families, some of whites. On some, Negro fish markets are conducted, advertised by large catfish dangling from their posts and railings, whether fishing for market, for personal use, or merely for the sake of having an occupation involving a minimum of effort. The residents of shanty boats particularly the Negroes seem to spend most of their days seated in drowsy attitudes, with fish poles in their hands, their eyes fall shut, their heads not in the Sunday their lines lag in the muddy water, life is uneventful, pleasant, and warm, when Porter Smorter fleet lay in the river, off Dixburg, bombarding the town, that river was the Mississippi, but though it looks the same today as it did then, it is not the Mississippi now, but the Yazoo River. This comes about through one of those freakish changes of course for which the great stream has always been famous. In the old days Vicksburg was situated upon one of the loops of a large letter S formed by the Mississippi. But in 1876 the river cut through a section of land and eliminated the loop upon which the town stood. Fortunately, however, the Yazoo emptied into the Mississippi above Vicksburg, and it was found possible, by digging a canal, to divert the latter river from its course and lead its waters into the loop left dry by the whim of the greater stream. Thus the river life, out of which Vicksburg was born, and without which the place would lose its character, was retained, and the wicked old Mississippi, which has played rough pranks on men and cities since men and cities first appeared upon its banks, was for once circumvented. This is but one item from the record of grotesque tricks wrought by changes in the river's course, a record of farms located at night on one side of the stream, and in the morning on the other, of large tracts of land transferred from state to state by a sudden switch of this treacherous fluid line of boundary, of river boats crashing by night into dry land where yesterday a deep stream flowed, of towns built up on river trade, utterly dependent upon the river, yet finding themselves suddenly deserted by it, like wives whose husbands disappear leaving them withering, helpless, and in want, where the upper Mississippi, above St. Louis, flows between tall bluffs it attains a grandeur which one expects in mighty streams, but that is not the part of the river which gets itself talked about in the newspapers and in Congress, nor is it the part of the river one involuntarily thinks of when the name Mississippi is mentioned, the drama, the wonder, the mystery of the Mississippi are in the lower river, the river of countless wooded islands, now standing high and dry. Now buried to the treetops in swirling torrents of muddy water, the river of black gnarled snags carried downstream to the gulf with the speed of motor boats, the river whose craft sail on a level with the roofs of houses, the river of broken levees, of savage inundations. The upper river has a beauty which is like that of some lovely, stately, placid, well-behaved blonde wife. She is conventional and correct. You always know where to find her. The lower river is a temperamental mistress. At one moment she is all sweetness, smiles and playfulness, at the next vivid and passionate. Even when she is at her loveliest there is always the possibility of sudden fury, of her rising in a rage, breaking the furniture, wrecking the house yes, and perhaps winding her wicked cold arms about you in a final destroying embrace. Being the Gibraltar of the river, albeit a Gibraltar of clay and not of rock, Vicksburg does not suffer when floods come. Turn your back upon the river. As you stand on the platform of the Yazoo and Mississippi Railroad Station, and you may gather at a glance an impression of the town piling up the hillside to the eastward, the first buildings, occupying the narrow shelf of land at the water's edge, are small warehouses, negro eating houses, dilapidated little steamship offices, and all manner of shacks in want of paint and repairs. From the station Mulberry Street runs obliquely up the hillside to the south. The street 
which forms the main thoroughfare to the station, used to be occupied by wholesale houses, but has more lately been given over largely to a frankly and prominently exposed district of commercialized vice Negro and white. Not only is it at the very door of Vicksburg, but it parallels, and is but one block distant from, the city's main street. Other streets, so steep as hardly to be passable, directly assault the face of the hill, mounting abruptly to a Washington Street, which runs on a flat terrace at about the height of the top of the station roof, and exposes to the view of the newly arrived traveler the unpainted wooden backs of a number of frame buildings which, though they are but two or three stories high in front, reach in some cases a height of five or six stories at the rear, owing to the steepness of the hillside to which they cling, the roof lines, side walls, windows, chimneys, galleries, posts, and railings of these sad-looking structures are all picturesquely out of plumb, and some idea of the general dilapidation may be gathered from the fact that, one day, while my companion stood on the station platform, drawing a picture of the scene, a brick chimney, a portrait of which he had just completed, softly collapsed before our eyes, for all the world like a sitter who, having held a pose too long, faints from exhaustion, a brief inspection of the life on the galleries of these foul old fire traps reveals them as Negro tenements, and, though they front on the main street of Vicksburg, it should be explained that about here begins the nigger end of Washington Street the more prosperous portion of the downtown section lying to the southward, where substantial brick office buildings may be seen, between the ragged, bulging tenements above are occasional narrow gaps through which are revealed cinematographic glimpses of street traffic and over the tenement roofs one catches sight of sundry other buildings, these being of brick, and, though old, and in no way imposing, yet of a more prosperous and self-respecting character than the nearer structures. Altogether, the scene, though it is one to delight and etcher, is not of a character to inspire hope in the heart of a humanitarian, or an expert on sanitation or fire prevention, nor, indeed, would it achieve completeness, even on the artistic side were it not for its crowning feature, far off, over the roofs and above them, making an apex to the composition, and giving to the whole picture a background of beauty and of ancient dignity, rises the graceful white column cupola of Vicksburg's old stone courthouse, partially obscured by a feathery green treetop, hinting of space and foliage upon the summit of the hill, pamphlets on Vicksburg, issued by railroad companies for the enticement of tourists give most of their space to the story of the campaign leading to Grant's siege of Vicksburg and to descriptions of the various operations in the siege the battlefield, now a national military park, being considered the city's chief object of interest. Though I am not constitutionally enthusiastic about seeing battlefields, I must admit that I found the field of Vicksburg engrossing. The siege of a small city presents a comparatively simple and compact military problem which island therefore, comprehensible to the civilian mind and in addition to this the Vicksburg battlefield is splendidly preserved and marked, so that the visitor may easily reconstruct the conflict. The park, which covers the fighting area, forms a loose crescent-shaped strip over the hills which surround the city, its points abutting on the river above and below. The chief drives of the park parallel each other, the inner one, Confederate Avenue, following, as nearly as the hills permit, the city's line of defense, while the other, Union Avenue, forms an outer semicircle and follows, in a similar manner, the trenches of the attacking forces, that the battlefield is so well preserved is due in part to man and in part to nature. Many of the hills of Warren County, in which Vicksburg is situated, are composed of a curious soft limey clay, called marl, which, 
normally, has not the solidity of soft chalk. Mars Harris Dixon, who knows more about Vicksburg and also about Negroes, common law, floods, funny stories, geology, and rivers than any other man in Mississippi, tells me that this marl was deposited by the river, in the form of silt, centuries ago, and that it was later thrown up into hills by volcanic action. He did not live in Vicksburg when this took place, but deduces his facts from the discovery of the remains of shellfish in the soil of the hills. Whatever its geological origin, the soil has some very strange characteristics. In composition it is neither stone nor sand, but the cross between the two brown and brittle. One can easily crush it to dust in one's hand, in which form it has about the consistency of talcum powder, and it may be added that when this brown powder is seized by the winds and whirled about, Vicksburg becomes one of the most mercilessly dusty cities on the surf. On exposed slopes the marl washes very badly, forming great caving gullies, but, curiously enough, where it is exposed perpendicularly it does not wash, but slicks over on the outside, and stands almost as well as soft sandstone. Although you can readily dig into it with your fingers, many of the highways leading in and out of the city pass between tall walls of this peculiar soil, through deep cuts which a visitor might naturally take for the result of careful grading by the road builders, but Mars Harris Dixon tells me that the cuts are entirely the result of erosion wrought by a hundred years of wheeled traffic. So far as I know there is but one man who has witnessed this phenomenon without being impressed. That man is Samuel Marin. Marin went down and visited Mars Harris in Vicksburg, and saw all the sights. He was polite about the battlefield, and the river, and the Negro stories, and everything else, until Mars Harris showed him how the highways had eroded through the hills. That did not seem to impress him at all. Moreover, instead of being tactful, he started telling about his trip to China. In China, he said, there were similar formations. As the civilization of China was much older than that of Vicksburg fancy his having said a thing like that, the gorges over there had eroded to a much greater extent, he said he had seen them 300 feet deep, the more Mars Harris tried to get him to say something a little bit complimentary about the Vicksburg erosions, the more Marin boasted about China, he declared that the Vicksburg erosions didn't amount to a hill of beans compared with what he could show Mars Harris if Mars Harris would go with him to a certain point on the banks of the Wachu in the province of Langbangsi. Evidently he harped on this until he touched not only his host's local pride, but his pride of discovery. Before that, Mars Harris had been content to stick around in Mississippi, with perhaps a little run down to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, or up to Dogtail to see a break in the levee. But after Marion's talk about China he began to grow restless, and it is generally said in Vicksburg that it was purely in order to have something to tell Marion about. The next time he saw him, that he made his celebrated trip to the source of the Nile. As for Marin, he has never been invited back to Vicksburg, and it is to be observed that, even to this day, Mars Harris, by nature of a sunny disposition, shows signs of erosion of the spirit when China is mentioned. It is apropos the battlefield that I mention the peculiarities of the soil. Had the bare ground been exposed to the rains of a few years, the details of redoubts, trenches, gun positions, saps, and all other military works would have melted away. Fortunately, however, there is a kind of tough, strong-rooted grass, called Bermuda grass, indigenous to that part of the country, and this grass quickly covered the battlefield, holding the soil together so effectually that all outlines are practically embalmed. So, 
although those in charge of the park have contributed not a little to its preservation putting old guns in their former places, perpetuating saps with concrete work, and placing white markers on the hillsides, to show how far up those hillsides the assaulting Union troops made their way in various historic charges it is due most of all to nature that the Vicksburg battlefield so well explains itself. Could Grant and Pemberton look today upon the hills and valleys where surged their six weeks struggle for possession of the city? I doubt that they would find any important landmark wanting, and it is certain that they could not say, as Wellington did when he revisited Waterloo, they have spoiled my battlefield. Besides the old guns and the markers, the field is dotted over with observation towers and all manner of memorials. Of the latter, the marble pantheon erected by the state of Illinois and the beautiful marble and bronze memorial structure of the state of Iowa, are probably the finest. The marble column erected by Wisconsin carries at its summit a great bronze effigy of Old Abe, the famous eagle, mascot of the Wisconsin troops. Guides to the battlefield are prone to relate to visitors especially, I suspect, those whose accents betray a northern origin how Old Abe, the bird of battle, went home and disgraced himself. After the war, by his ungentlemanly action in laying a setting of eggs, the handsomest monument to an individual which I saw upon the battlefield was the admirable bronze bust of Major General Martin L. Smith, CSA and the one which appealed most to my imagination was also a memorial to a Confederate soldier, Brigadier General States writes just, is there not something Roman in the thought that, thirty or more years before the war, a southern father gave his newborn son that name, dedicating him, as it were to the cause of states' rights, and that the son so dedicated gave his life in battle for that cause, the name upon that stone made me better understand the depth of feeling that existed in the South long years before the war, and gave me a clearer comprehension of at least one reason why the South made such a gallant fight, of more than fourscore national cemeteries in the United States, that which stands among the hills and trees, overlooking the river, at the northerly end of the military park, is one of the most beautiful and island with the single exception of Arlington, the largest, it contains the graves of nearly 17.000 Union soldiers lost in this campaign three-fourths of them, and known. It is interesting to note that, because the surrender of Pemberton to Grant occurred on July 4th, that date has, in this region, associations less happy than attached to it elsewhere, and that the 4th has not been celebrated in Vicksburg since the Civil War, except by the Negroes who have taken it for their especial holiday. This reminds me, also, of the fact that, throughout the South, Christmas, instead of the 4th of July, is celebrated with fireworks. Chapter XLVI Shreds and Patches It was Mars Harry's Dixon who showed us the battlefield. As we were driving along in the motor we overtook an old trudging Negro, very picturesque in his ragged clothing and battered soft hat. My companion said that he would like to take a picture of this wayfarer and asked Mars Harris, who, as author of the old reliable stories, seemed best fitted for the task, to arrange the matter. The automobile, having passed the Negro, was stopped to wait for him to catch up. Presently, as he came by, Mars Harris addressed him in that friendly way Southerners have with Negroes. Want your picture taken, old man? he asked, to which the Negro, still shuffling along, replied, I ain't got no money, Mars Harris. Knowing the workings of the Negro mind, got the full import of this reply at once, but I must confess that a moment passed before I realized that the Negro took us for itinerant photographers looking for trade, with the possible exception of Irvin S. Cobb, 
I suppose Mars Harris has the largest collection of Negro character stories of any individual in this country, and let me say, in this connection, that I know of no better place than Vicksburg for the study of Southern Negro types. One day Mars Harris was passing by the jail, it was hot weather, and the jail windows were open, behind the bars of one window, looking down upon the street, stood a Negro prisoner. As Mars Harris passed this window a Negro wearing a large watch chain came by in the other direction. His watch chain evidently caught the eye of the prisoner, who spoke in a wistful tone, demanding, What time is it, brother? What though you want to know what time it is? Returned the other sternly, as he continued upon his way. You ain't going nowhere. Through Mars Harris I obtained a copy of a letter written by a Negro named Walter to Mr. W.H. Reeve of Vicksburg. Walter had looked out for Mr. Reeves' livestock during a flood, and had certain ideas about what should be done for him in consequence. I give the letter exactly as it was written, merely inserting, parenthetically, a few explanatory words, Mr. H.W. Reeves and those dear sir I like to get me a par pair second-hand pants done to fail or else I will be doubt without a pair to go anywhere so send me something. Done to fail and send me a par of your pants or I will have to go to a work for somebody to get some. I don't think you all is treating me right at all I stayed with your hogs in the water till the last tenning attending to them and I don't think that your odor ought to fail me bout a pair old pants Walter though I cannot see just why it should be so. It seemed to us that the Vicksburg Negroes were happier than those of any other place we visited, whether drowsing in the sun and walking the streets, doing a little stroke of work, fishing, or sitting gabbling on the curbstone. They were upon the whole as cheerful and as comical a lot of people as I ever saw. What you all going to? I heard a Negro ask a group of mulatto women, in clean starched gingham dresses, who went flouncing by him on the street one Saturday afternoon. Oh, returned one of the women, with the elaborate superiority of a member of the class of Idle Rich. We're just serenading round. Serenading, as she used the word, meant a promenade about the town. Perhaps the happiness of the Negro, here, has to do with the lazy life of the river. The succulent catfish is easily obtainable for food, and the wages of the roustabout or rouster, as he is called for short are good. The rouster, in his red undershirt, with a bale hook hung in his belt, is a figure to fascinate the eye, when he works.